fire, earth, water, air. Long ago, the four nations lived together in harmony. Then, everything changed when the Water Nation attacked. Only the Avatar, master of all four elements, could stop them. But when the world needed him most, he vanished. A hundred years passed and my brother and I discovered the new Avatar, an airbender named Aang. And although his airbending skills are great, he has a lot to learn before he's ready to save anyone. But I believe... Aang can save the world. Distorted Reality by Bathan Chapter 68 Howl of the Wolf Princess Sirius Moon, Part 4 In a separate plane overlapping with the material world, Sedna and Sirius battled. They fought the way ancient spirits did only when unseen by the eyes of mortals. The true form of conflict, forces of nature clashing amidst the unraveling of existence. Flowers withered as winter descended, moonlight pierced to the dark, and snowfall withdrew to the mountains. Ice from the great expanse of the heavens spread across the surface of the moon. Tides rose and receded, dry lands flooded. Climates shifted in the spirit world, dulling the bite of winter. The night lengthened, and harsh winds blew. But winter alone could not halt the orbit of celestial bodies. Sirius' heavenly journey continued, as absolute as the passing of the seasons. Toph heard a ringing in her ears. Everything else felt distant. Shouts of her friends echoed somewhere far away. She tasted blood, warm and metallic on her tongue, and she spit it out, stumbling with every step. The world, all of the vibrations that came to her, felt so noisy. Somehow, even Spirit Toph felt garbled, their senses melding together. Dit! Bandit! I need you to get up! Me? Toph mumbled. Smellerby tugged at her arm, trying to drag her to her feet, but her knees quivered against the snow. But with each movement, she could pick out more and more details around her, starting with the fact that she could properly identify Smellerby standing next to her. Wait, things are getting clearer! The ringing faded, and Toph pushed herself to stand upright. A man was unconscious on the ground nearby. Someone Smellerby must have knocked out. The earth continued to shake with the force of that firebender's explosive bending from on top of the wall. But within those vibrations, other details started to reveal themselves to her again. Longshot and Teo hid behind a fishmonger's stall, ducking away from a firebender's attacks. Down the street, from behind an earth wall that shielded them from Longshot's arrows, Jin Fu commanded the wolf skulls to try and root them out of their hiding places. You mean your feet can see again? Her head ached something fierce, and standing up straight still made her feel dizzy, but focus started to return to the world. She didn't know if it was something Teo did or something else, but her strength had returned. Yes, she said. From around the corner, she pounded her fist against the ground, and two Jin Fu's firebenders launched high into the air, wailing in fright as they sailed out of view. They can. The sound like buzzard wasps pulverized the air again, and fire rained down right after it, but this time, 
Toph didn't even flinch. The explosions came closer and closer, bursting in a line at the edge of the city. That's way more than Combustion Man could ever do in my world, said Spirit Toph. I got this. Long shot, Toph said, running to his side. You said you just needed a clear shot and higher ground? Leave it to me. Fierce winds blew across Agnacala, the waters tumultuous even with the southern fleet waterbenders assailing the city. The sky darkened under the force of spirits even with Sirius moon and Sousa's comet looming overhead. Kana didn't waver, even as the ocean trembled under her feet. With quick movements of her arms, she diverted the lances of ice shot at her toward the water, rising higher on a pillar as she summoned ice spikes underneath the warship. She pierced its hull and ripped it apart from the bottom then gestured to push the whole ship out of her way before it turned into a wreck and sank right in front of her. The waterbenders on board helped their non-bender compatriots from drowning as they capsized on the rock flats or clung to floating icebergs. As Paku and Hu combined their strength for another tidal wave to push three ships crashing into each other, she looked back at the city, sparing a thought for all the people there being attacked by dark spirits. Piandao made quick work of a spearman who thought he'd be able to catch the swordsman unaware. He could only wonder at the foolhardy nature of his opponent, who had just witnessed Piandao swiftly dispatch a pair of watermenders and hurl them into the canal. The warrior jabbed forward with his spear, and ice erupted from the walkway to match his movements, but his lack of skill, or his bloated ego, caused him to underestimate Piandao. Benders of every type always came at him with overconfidence, and it seemed their empowerment under Sirius moon just made them worse. After knocking the warrior into the canal with his brothers in arms, Piandao wondered how his two students were doing. Zuko and Aang would both be stronger than usual now, but he hoped they didn't forget that they weren't invincible either. Beyond the wind and crackle of his firebender allies' lightning, Piandao heard chimes ringing out from over a bridge and around the corner. Dark spirits floated over with manic, slobbering grins and tiny limbs hanging limp, apparently discovering a victim. Piandao leapt across the canal with the agility of a man half his age, and the chime kept reverberating across the ice, something surprisingly gentle in the chaos of the city. When he turned the corner, he found a whole host of dark spirits hovering, all facing a person in the center of them. That person was Wu, holding out a bronze bell with wide, fearful eyes. For some reason, the dark spirits didn't attack her. When she saw Piandao, her eyes locked onto him, Oh, thank heavens you're here. It seems music soothes the savage spirits. Piandao glanced at the spirits, which benignly swayed in the wind and brought to mind the war balloons currently on the other side of the world. I thought I told you to hide. Well, a few of them found me. They heard the bell in my robes, she said. She struck the bell again, its resounding clamor almost reverent. Luckily, I keep one on hand for rituals. A woman in a heavy blue parka around Piandao's age appeared in the doorway of the nearby house. Her gray hair was tied in two braids, framing the sides of her face, and a warrior who looked like he could have been her brother stood behind her protectively, a wooden mask hanging at his belt. "'Hold them steady,' said the sister. "'I can spirit-bend them and calm these spirits.' Piandao had been expecting a fight, but graciously accepted their aid with a nod. Wu smiled and rang her bell again. At the cliffside bordering the city, P. 
Hyundao heard Bumi's laughter get abruptly cut short. He ran toward the disturbance, circling around one of the spirit world crystal trees that forced its way into the canal, and held his sword in a stance when he found Bumi surrounded by nearly a dozen warriors and waterbenders. Spriggy was on her knees behind him, and for a moment, Piondao feared the worst. Stay away from my new girlfriend, Bumi shouted at his opponents. He threw his arms forward, and stone blocks launched out from the cliff far behind him, pelting his enemies with pinpoint accuracy. A couple of the waterbenders managed to deflect his attacks, and when they went to retaliate, Bumi covered his entire body in a pile of rocks. His enemies dumped water on him and froze it, but the pile of rocks quivered and Bumi burst free, wearing a full bodysuit of rock armor that he had somehow carved in seconds with loving detail and attention to musculature. It looked like a statue of a warrior come to life, complete with a loincloth made of stone and even a full head of hair, exposing only his eyes and mouth. Oh my, said Spriggy, holding her fingers to her lips. Bumi held out his armored hands and blocked the jet streams of water, stomping over to his adversaries. Spears and machetes bounced harmlessly off of his rock skin and shattered under the force of his punches. His added weight and bulk anchored him down when currents of water threatened to drag him away, and he forced himself through to penetrate the waterbender's defenses, knocking them out with a single strike each. He turned back to Spriggy, falling down on one knee at her side to help her stand. Spriggy, are you all right? Yes, don't worry about me, love, she said, chuckling to herself. She held up Miyuki, her cat, who looked perfectly at ease in the middle of a war zone. I only tripped because Miyuki got tangled up between my legs. She's such a silly girl. I think she's hungry. Well, I'm glad I'm not needed here, said Piondao, shaking his head and returning to the battle before either of them could notice him. You, you're choosing to save me. Hakoda's words came out in a rasp as Aang and Sokka joined together to heal him. They bathed Hakoda's torso in water and ice, washing away the blood. The glow seemed more vibrant in the night under the light of Seryu's moon, a beacon to be seen across the snowfields. Aang wasn't sure if Hakoda's statement was a question or not. Katara's blade had slid in and out of him cleanly, but Aang wasn't sure of what internal damage had been dealt. He'd wanted to believe she would listen to him, that she would let go of her vengeance and see that they could prevail without having to kill Hakoda. But in the end, he knew he couldn't fault her for what she had done. This was his choice, and he couldn't force it on the others. She wasn't wrong for wanting to kill him, just as Aang wasn't wrong for wanting to spare him. He believed that with all of his being. Aang, I'm sorry, Sokka said focusing his gaze entirely on his task. Hakoda's words went unanswered. I shouldn't have brought Katara along. I messed up. I knew this wasn't what you wanted. I thought we could use her help, but I should have known better. I don't blame you at all, Aang said, his brow furrowed with sweat despite the cold. His broken left arm throbbed in agony, the swelling only kept down because of the ice cast around it. But he knew that could only be a temporary measure, the longer he kept it on, the more he endangered his arm. I trust your judgment, always. Sokka took in a deep breath, closed his eye, and nodded when he opened again. I'll try some bloodbending. Never thought I'd see it, Hakoda said, wincing in pain. My son, 
fighting to save my life when I am at his mercy. Don't get me wrong, Sokka replied. I think you deserve to die for everything you've done, and for the war you've continued when you had the power to stop it. But if Aang thinks there's another way, I trust his judgment, too. He gave me the benefit of the doubt, despite what I'd done in the past, and what I could have continued to do if I followed that path. You're both <coughs> idealistic fools, Hakoda said with a cough, but the healing continued even as the ocean churned dangerously behind them. The purple sky turned darker as the ever storm fought back, but the rumble of thunder felt distant compared to the ringing of their vigorous healing as they knit Hakoda back together. He'd lost a lot of blood, and Aang suspected that Sokka's bloodbending had prevented him from losing more. I think the worst has passed, Aang said after some time. He turned to Sokka. He needs a proper healer now. Go find Azula and Katara. I'll take it from here. Are you sure? Sokka asked. Your arm needs healing, too. I'm fine, Aang said. He was concerned for Azula, but he also couldn't just leave Hakoda here to his devices. Sokka peered at Aang with a weighing gaze before finally acquiescing, pulling away from Hakoda. Without sparing another glance at his father, Sokka departed across the snow. You think you can truly convince me to follow your ways so easily? Hakoda asked. When history has proven time and time again that humans suffer from the interference of spirits in our lives? There are good spirits and bad spirits, Aang said, just like people. He began to worry about his next task, stopping Kuei's fleet just off the coast from being destroyed. Then he would have to transport Hakoda to the healers in the city somehow, and make his forces surrender. Nothing could be done about the Agna Quella fleet assaulting the Golden City. He could only hope the comet had given them enough power to fight back. He stood up and let the ice around his arm melt away, focusing his attention to healing himself now that the danger had passed. You think you are so enlightened in your views, but you really are just a child who cannot see the big picture, Hakoda said. His voice sounded so chilling that it was the only warning Aang had. An ice spike erupted under Aang's feet, but he leapt high into the air just in time to avoid it. Aang let out a grunt as the jostling of his arm caused him more pain, but he landed several paces away from Hakoda as the Emperor stumbled to his feet, a healing glove coating his hand as he held it to his chest. "'You're not done?' Aang asked, once again taking a stance. Just as he had felt with Katara, he found himself disappointed by Hakoda's actions. Words that might not have been entirely his own pushed to the surface, pain that belonged to Yangshen and his other self. "'You'll continue to defend the legacy of your forefathers, even when it was them?' And not spirits that wiped out all of my people? This is a battle of conviction, Hakoda said, water coating his body up to his neck. All that glowed with healing power. One that will decide the fate of the world and human history. Despite my wounds, I refuse to give in. Every part of Haru's body ached as the battle outside Aniakto continued. The arrival of Liren's beaver bear clan helped to prevent their forces from being wiped out, with her waterbenders countering the allied clans under Hakoda. But it wasn't enough. The entire landscape had been turned against them. The ice and the snow splitting them apart. The enemy surrounded Frostmere Lake, giving them a handhold outside of the walls that General Zhang and Ozai couldn't penetrate. Many of the enemy waterbenders trampled the outcast taboo breaker campsites on the opposite bank of the lake, forcing them to flee but a handful even sought shelter with the invaders. 
Haru found himself among Siwong sandbenders and Daili agents, and with their leaders incapacitated or otherwise occupied, somehow Haru had been calling the shots. To his immense surprise, both parties listened to him, fighting at his back despite the sandbenders' lack of experience in battles like this, and the Daili's expertise in espionage rather than open combat. After a while, the pain became distant. The need to secure an escape for all of his friends inside the city drove him forward. If he failed them, it would be all for nothing. Even if, when, Aang managed to defeat Hakoda. A warhorn blared across the battlefield. More warriors and waterbenders rode toward them on backs of buffalo yaks, weapons held high, and Haru almost felt himself get crushed under the weight of despair. After all this fighting, despite all of the odds stacked against them, they had managed to hang on and even hold their ground. But now, he almost dropped his mallets as he watched them approach. He couldn't immediately identify the clan. Almost all of them had a headdress made of some spiked animal hide sweeping down their backs with black with streaks of white. A warrior that Haru barely noticed rushed in with a spear, but Chief Liren appeared, as if from nowhere, and hacked at Haru's assailant with her giant machete, breaking through his brown shield and sending him sprawling. Haru blinked as the warrior yelped and sailed over his head, falling unconscious. Don't give up yet, soldier, Liren barked at him. These people are looking at you to lead them. If you stop, they'll lose hope too. But Haru's eyes trailed to the oncoming wave of enemy reinforcements. But just as they reached the battlefield, instead of coming to the aid of Hakoda's other warriors, the new arrivals struck them from behind. Haru's eyes widened, and he almost dropped his mallets again, this time in surprise. Huh? Well, that's quite the turn, Liren said, smirking. That'll be the Wolverine Skunk Clan. I heard they were without a leader now, so I wonder who sent them. From what Haru knew, the Wolverine Skunk Clan had been fighting Hakoda's allied clans throughout the South Pole, but he thought they had been defeated, since those allied clans showed up at Eniakto as part of Hakoda's trap. Yet here they were, fighting against their own people once again. What did it mean? One of the Siwong benders and a Daili agent crossed stone barricades in front of Haru to defend him from an attack. So he shook his head and shouted at his allies to advance. Suki retreated to some cover underneath an overhang, backing up against the building so that she could keep both Sayuk and Anuna in her vision. Sayuk pursued her, his serrated machete swinging, but Suki danced around his blows as she watched Mei shake out her hand. She got you? Suki called out to her. Somehow, with her attention split between her two opponents and May, she managed to see a needle zipping through the air and deflected it with her remaining fan. The movement left her open, though, and when a deep voice shouted out in warning, she managed to duck just in time. Sayek nearly beheaded her, but instead his machete cleaved into the wood at her back. The voice had come from one of the slumped bodies against the building she had previously assumed to be unconscious, Anuna's former victims. It was a giant man, with a boyish face and a wide nose, a heavy club made from what looked like a tree log and mismatched clothes. Don't know who you are, he said. But you gotta win. Thanks, Sugi replied, deflecting Sayek's other swing with her blade. She tried to maneuver him away from the defenseless and paralyzed boy, but that meant leaving herself fully open to Inuna again. May, are you alright? May grimaced. It barely nicked me, so it's spreading slowly, but my hand is already going numb. I've got one shot left. Make it count. Suki furrowed her brow. May was telling her to make it count? 
but when she threw one dagger toward the high scaffolding Anuna stood on, she understood. Rather than striking Anuna, who dodged, it hit the exhaust pipe of one of the steam tankers directly next to her. The smoke shot into Anuna's face, making her flail her arms. The scaffolding shuddered as she stomped her feet to get away from the smoke, coughing and sputtering, and Suki knew at once what May intended. She disengaged from Sayuk and turned her back on him, running as fast as she could toward the scaffolding. She started climbing it with little effort, but before she reached Anuna, the older woman ducked down and out of the smoke, her eyes watering, and she saw Suki right underneath her. Before Anuna could leap across to the safety of a different building, Suki pulled out her blade and sliced through one of the wooden supports, making the scaffolding rattle and slant so that Anuna lost her balance. Before she could recover, Suki cut through another one and then hurled her blade into Anuna's path, making her shriek and take a step back. Her unbalanced movements made all of the scaffolding come down in a clatter of wood and a cloud of dust. Anuna! Sayuk roared, rushing to his wife's defense. Now that she had been brought down to the ground, Suki slammed into her with her elbow and took her out in one strike before Anuna could hurl another needle at her. Suki managed to dive out of the way of the falling scaffolding, but now all she had was a single fan against Sayuk's rage. Just as he reared back to swing, a wooden log smashed into the side of his head, and he teetered for a moment, dazed, until he collapsed to the ground beside his wife, revealing May behind him. Suki breathed a sigh of relief. Close one she said. Thanks. That was a good plan. May dropped the heavy club, her right arm limp. Didn't expect you to take down the whole scaffolding, she said, rolling her eyes. What a mess. Suki laughed. Well, it worked, didn't it? I thought you'd take him out with the paralyzing needle Anuna hit you with, she said. Why didn't you just do that? I figured he'd have built up a resistance to his wife's poisons, she said, shrugging. It's what I would have done. Besides, Pipsqueak's club worked just fine. May's knees shook, and she collapsed to the ground in an ungraceful lump, the paralysis spreading to her other limbs. Suki put her hands on her hips, grinning. Guess I'll have to drag you and that Pipsqueak guy out of here, huh? With her cheek pressed against the ground, May glared, but the effect was lost with how funny she looked. Only if you want to kill me through embarrassment, she said. Just go through her stuff, take all her needles, and find an antidote. Suki started toward the unconscious Anuna, her grin cheeky. Okay, but I'll only give you the antidote if you say please. I hate how much you're enjoying this. Dark spirits swooped through the air toward Shimo like hunting swalakeets, but he sliced through them as if they were no more threatening than falling blossoms. Yue gripped her staff as he fought his way to her, his water-bending slices like phantom swords cutting her spirit protectors. She still didn't know why, exactly, the dark spirits answered her call. She didn't have much control over them, but they seemed to sense what she wanted, knowing to protect her from Shimo. Every new moon throughout her life they'd been drawn to her, but it was never like this, even in the spirit world. Was it something to do with the moon spirit that had given her life back? The night seer's defeat? Her staff or even her father? All she knew for sure was that she had to stop her former master. She couldn't fall here, not after everything they had accomplished. She thought of Nagi somewhere in this city, and longed to see her. The largest dark spirit of them all, the one protecting her in a shadowy embrace, let out an unearthly cry. Ice spikes had pierced its defenses, but with its cry she saw tendrils of darkness from two other spirits reach out to bind Shimo. 
He resisted their pull, circling his blade in a slow, almost mesmerizing motion. The temperature dropped. Hundreds or thousands of tiny ice shards whirling through the air toward Yue. The dark spirit enveloped her, and it wailed once again in a way that shook her to her core. She hated this. She didn't want them suffering for her after they already suffered so much. She refused to use the dark spirits as tools the way her father and the Nightseer did. Yue stepped out of the circle of protection, dropping her staff and unsheathing her blade as she lunged towards Shimo. The ice cut her, ripping her parka and long robes underneath. The cold gripped her like death did, but she persisted through it with her blade flashing towards Shimo, just as he raised his as well. Perhaps the dark spirits clinging to him lowered his reflexes, weighing him down so that she outsped him, but she cut him clean across his torso. His ice-blue robe streaked with a line of crimson. All the ice shards halted in midair and fell like broken glass, and Shimo's blade clattered to the ground with it. He slumped, and not a moment later, she did as well. Parts of her parka had ripped to tatters, and it felt like every inch of exposed skin had been scratched, the cold stinging her. She leaned against the wall, panting, but holding onto the hilt of her sword. I cannot lose here, she said. She had too many people she needed to see again, too many to fight for. She had already died once. You haven't lost, Shimo responded with a choked gasp, applying pressure to his wound. He tore part of his robes and tied it around the gash, and Yue felt dread clutching her heart, thinking that he may get up to continue the battle. I yield, he said finally. What? Why? Shimo slouched against the opposite wall as the dark spirits vanished, perhaps returning to the spirit world. I never had the talent for healing, and as far as students went, you were far from the worst. Behind the palace of Agna Quella, Sangmu found the spirit oasis. Dark spirits swarmed it like they did the rest of the city. The air felt heavy and warm here, almost sticky, and it had a foul, earthy smell that made her think of a bog. A bamboo copse on the island in the center of the oasis looked as if it had long ago rotted, the bamboo shoots dead and colorless. A waterfall behind the bamboo fed into the water here, but even that looked as if the flow of water sputtered and struggled. She lifted her glider and spun, almost as if in dance, letting the air flow into the oasis to cleanse it. Momo and Sabi leapt from her shoulders and watched, their ears pressed flat against their bodies. The dark spirits all looked towards her at once, as if sensing what she intended to do, and they attacked. Sangmu unfurled her glider and flew, circling around the oasis as they pursued her. Her heart raced as she let herself go in a freefall, twisting around to swing her staff behind her and striking the spirits with a burst of wind. It stopped one of the flying ones, sending it tumbling with a screech into the others, but another one with too many teeth and grasping hands managed to clutch under her cloak and drag her back down to the ground. They all converged on her, laughing and chittering with sharp beaks and claws. Sangmu had no choice. She dropped her staff and pressed her knuckles together. Wind spun around her in a defensive barrier, blowing them all away from her. She kept moving, her staff lost in the struggle. A pair of imp-like spirits with tiny wings and bulbous red eyes went after Momo and Sabi, and they wrestled in a cloud of screeching and scratching and biting. Sangmu tried to make her way to them, 
but a monster with a skeletal frame barred her path. She struck towards it with her open palm, slamming at the wall of wind, and that disoriented it long enough for her to slip past. Another one crawled toward her on unnervingly human-like limbs that looked as if the joints were all backward, trying to grab her by the ankles, but she leapt over it, and then the bridge where a fat one waited to ambush her. The lemurs managed to fight off one of the dark spirits, and then ganged up on the remaining one together. The moment they separated from it, Samu spun and swung an arc of wind at it. Both lemurs hissed as it got knocked into the oasis door, their fur standing on end, and then flew towards Sangmu in gratitude. A slithering, snake-like spirit snapped at her with fangs that dripped with something dark and oily, but she pressed her palms downward, and the burst of wind propelled her upward. The lemurs grasping her shoulders flapped their wings at the same time, giving her more height than she expected, and it was just enough for her to avoid the snap of the spirit's fangs. I don't know what to do, she said to Momo and Sabi, her voice high. There are too many of them. This place truly had become a nest of darkness. She could only wonder how long there had been rituals to worship dark spirits taking place here. When she landed on the ground again, more of them kept pursuing her like a horde of giant locusts. She clasped her hands together the moment her feet touched the ground, unleashing a sound wave that swept through the oasis. It hurled many of the smaller ones back, but the larger ones only yowled and gnashed their teeth and pressed their attack. Wishing and hoping that the lemurs would continue clinging to her shoulders, Sangmu wove and spun between every spirit that threw itself at her, snapping her fingers and clapping her hands to assault them with high-pitched sonic blasts and low, sonorous horns that made even the ground vibrate. Momo and Sabi screeched along with her attacks, as if trying to add to them. She twisted to ward off one of them above her, then two on the side, and then clapped her hands at the front. Sangmu ducked and snapped her fingers at both of her sides, interspersing her sound bending with normal bursts of air to ward them away or defend herself. She felt her reactions getting slower, her breaths getting shorter and more rapid, and didn't know how much longer she'd be able to keep this up. But strangely, their attacks already seemed to be coming less frequently. She spun her hand for another burst of air, only to realize they had stopped altogether. She hesitated a moment, confused. They looked at her, and those that had eyes still had hunger in them, but this time it was expectant, almost as if they were waiting for treats. As she stood watching them, they started growling and slobbering again. She snapped her fingers again, this time in rapid succession, differing the pitch to try to confuse them. It almost sounded like music. Once again, they quieted, going still like they had been listening. Music? She whispered, stunned. They like it? She twisted her wrist so the sounds lengthened, changing pitches in ways she'd never done before. The sounds could never have been replicated with an instrument, and yet the spirit stayed quiet, as though enraptured. She lowered her hands, realizing what she could do, what she had to do. Her voice wavering, she took a deep breath and started to sing. It had been a long time since she sang. She used to enjoy sitting over the canyon at the Western Air Temple, listening to the echo of her voice reverberating back to her. She had little reason to sing since then, but it had always been something she loved. Ever since the iceberg, she felt she had left her voice behind, like it had been frozen away, too. Her fear and grief felt as if it clogged her throat for so long, her uncertainty regarding her mother's people instigating the war left her feeling lost. Her voice sounded weak and feeble to her own ears, unpracticed. However, she noticed the dark spirits closest to her becoming more placid, a few gently swaying to the melody again. 
Her mind went back to the canyon, trying to remember the sound of her voice then, strong and full of joy and laughter, to feel how it had felt in her throat and bring it to life here once again. However, she instead found her thoughts turning to her new friends, her new memories. She pictured each of them in turn, Aang, despite not being the same Aang she once knew, who had become just as important to her. Toph and Azula, sometimes harsh, but also kind beneath all their pretenses. Zuko and even Sokka, the big brothers she never had. Her voice rose, and with the help of sound bending, the wordless melody bounced from the cliffside throughout the oasis, and more dark spirits calmed, listening. She began revolving as she sang, circling her hands to let the wind flow through the oasis. With the pleasant memories at the back of her mind, both old and new, she focused on the energies she felt clogging the air here like a miasma. Her voice continued to ring out as she worked at the knot of dark energy the air glittering as her hands weaved the sounds together. White winds surged through the oasis, a light to cleanse and purify the darkness. At last, the oppressive weight lifted and the foul odor disappeared. Though life didn't immediately return to the bamboo or the water flowing around her, she knew it would someday. She felt so full of peace that for a brief moment, she wondered if the oasis would get unbalanced towards the other polarity but she focused on the spirit bending and made sure the bountiful spirit energy here stayed balanced. Her technique didn't seem to turn the dark spirits back to normal, but when she stopped her singing, they drifted away as if no longer interested in the oasis or Sangmu herself. With a little less darkness in the world, she knew they might find their way back to normal on their own, or perhaps they'd find a water spirit bender. Sabi purred into her ear, and Momo cuddled up to her neck, and she let out a breath of relief as she stroked them both. <sighs> we did it, she said, scratching them behind their ears. We cleansed the oasis. Now, let's go see if they have all left the city, too. Blue fire surged from Azula's hands and feet as she soared over the darkened snowfields past dark and light spirits, pursuing the updraft of ice and water on the ground below her. The voice in her head urged her onward, screaming at her to finish this once and for all, to kill the filthy peasant, her most personal foe. Fire Lord Azula's murderous rage felt as if it had been amplified by Sozin's comet, just like her firebending. When she made it close enough to Katara, she did a mid-air flip and blasted her from above with a column of blue flames from her feet, the recoil making her flip back in the other direction. Katara turned in time, a layered wall of water and ice protecting her from the attack. Azula fell to the ground, breaking her fall with jets of fire from her feet. Her eyes narrowed at Katara. Where do you think you're going? Katara spread her arms wide. Though she stood up straight, she wavered on unsteady legs supported only by the power of her bloodbending. Even so, she looked jubilant victorious. I take it the Avatar is not happy that I achieved my revenge. No, Azula replied. As she had told Aang before, Azula thought Hakoda had to die, too. She fought to keep her voice steady, to keep from letting out the mad laughter of her other self. I came here to stop you. You know she's right. You wanted to kill him, too. 
The lengths you go to to convince yourself you're worthy of anyone's love is pathetic. I was going to run away for now, to heal and regroup, Katara said. Figure out what I need to do next. But it was always going to come down to this, wasn't it? It was always meant to be. Two monsters fighting at the end of the world. Azula spread her legs into a stance, trying to keep her face a mask. No bloodbending. Katara did the same, her grin almost manic in comparison. Then no lightning. Azula lunged forward, bringing her fists together to summon a deluge of blue and white fire, clashing together into an inferno that converged on Katara. Water and snow flowed beneath her legs, allowing her to skate around the attack and in circles around Azula. Katara's attack snaked across the ground toward her, roaring rivers that threatened to rip Azula's feet out from under her. Azula responded with punches of blue and white to dissipate them, and then a flamethrower that followed Katara's path, melting the ice that formed in her wake. A water wheel flowed around Katara, defending her from the blasts, and it spun towards Azula in a spinning column of white. Azula's fire made the water and ice glimmer and glow every time they clashed, the fire continuing to burn through the air long after it left Azula's control. The spirit world seemed to let it blaze longer, ghostly white flames that lingered like starlight around their battlefield. Azula backflipped away from the rain of icy blades, a trail of blue fire following the movement of her feet while white fire streamed from her hands like a pair of wings. All three streams came together at Katara's position, but she held her ground and gathered snow and water to defend herself. The moment Azula landed, a sphere of water circled around her, coiling and spinning and growing so that her fire wouldn't burst through it. She considered using lightning to break free, even if it went against the terms they had decided, but the memory of the night of the eclipse flashed through her mind like a thunderbolt. Katara deserved to die no more than Azula did, whether in this world or another. You really think that, don't you? That even I deserve to live? You'd spare my life if given a chance? We're monsters, no matter how much you delude yourself. I don't care what you think anymore. She pulled back both of her hands and condensed the white fire in them to a spinning orb, launching it at the ice walls that tried to imprison her. She burst three with a fire-propelled leap, raining down white fireballs like little meteorites. Each impact against the ground made them explode. Lances of water followed their flight paths back to Azula, coiling around her arms and legs in midair and dragging her back down to the ground, slamming her against the snow. Azula stumbled to her feet, disoriented from the attack, and struggled to find Katara in the cloud of steam and fog that blanketed the battlefield. She felt droplets hit her head, and for a moment she thought it started raining until she looked up and saw a massive sheet of water floating above her. She had only enough time to crouch down and meet it head-on with a spinning drill of blue fire just as it fell down on her in a solid mass as heavy as stone. Despite the sheer volume of water, her fire managed to penetrate it even as it slammed down on the ground, the force of its splash as loud as the breaking of icebergs. Azula found Katara from her vantage point in the air, striking at her with an arc of fire while Katara surfed toward her. Katara didn't see it coming. The concussive force of Azula's fire made her stumble and lose her footing on the water. Katara and Azula both fell to the ground, hoods fallen and their hair in disarray, panting as they struggled to stand again. When she propped herself up on her elbows, Azula spotted another figure skating towards them, and as he approached, she recognized him as Sokka. Closing her eyes, she took a deep breath 
and pushed herself to her feet just as Katara did. Unlike Katara, she did not take her stance again. I'm done fighting you, Azula said, making her decision. I don't care which one of us is stronger. This battle is fruitless. Katara's eyes widened, and she clenched her fists. What? How dare you? After all that, you're just going to give up? You can't think I'll let you go just like that. Why don't you kill her? She would do the same to you. Memories of fights between them, whether they battled against each other or at each other's sides, flickered through her mind. They blended together with battles from another world so deeply that she almost couldn't recall the difference between them. Her other self hated Katara almost as much as she hated Zuko, but Azula couldn't bring herself to feel the same way. I'm sorry, she said for the second time, but maybe this time Katara would hear her. Really? For not giving you the fight you wanted? For betraying you? For shooting you in the back? I know how much betrayal hurts. Katara's anger turned to malice, her eyes cold and dangerous. Do you expect me to say I'm sorry, too? For what my nation has done to you? I don't care. Fight me. The one Azula truly needed to fight was the demon in her head. Untouchable and invincible, no matter how much she tried. Sokka came close enough to be within earshot, and she spoke aloud enough for him to hear. I need to go where I can really help, she said like we originally planned when we decided to come here, to save the Earth Kingdom fleet. Katara yelled, her hands like claws, as she swiped a torrent of water towards Azula, but Sokka swept in front of the attack and diverted it around himself and Azula. No! Katara shouted, her voice hoarse from the desperation of what she wanted. I need to kill her! I need to get payback for what she's done, like I did with Dad! Sokka, get out of my way! Azula could only pity her the same way she pitied her other self. Could they have been allies in any world? Would it ever have been possible, as short-lived as it had been here? With Sokka's arrival, she knew she could leave Katara in his hands. And that meant Aang must have been safe, too. Saving the fleet is more important than fighting you, Azula said, turning away to depart. I may have done some things I regret, but I'm not a monster. And I never have been. Sokka stared at Azula, an unknowable expression on his face. If my little sister wants a fight so bad, he said, foregoing his weapons to face her bender to bender. His voice came out heavy with melancholy and regret. Then I'll give you what you want. It's my job as your brother. I've come so far, Katara shouted, tears brimming at the corner of her eyes. Sokka, you of all people won't stand in my way now. I don't want to fight you, he said, but I'll do what I have to. Azula didn't look back, even when Katara screamed her name in fury. So we can't just launch Longshot up there, Smellerbee said, kneeling with Toph as close to the edge of the domes as they dared. The walls are too high. He'd hurt himself when he landed. All four of them braced themselves with their ears covered when another one of Combustion Man's blasts pulverized the ground nearby. All of the buildings at the edge of the wall and outside of the ice domes had been completely destroyed, with people within them fleeing deeper into the city. He patrolled the top of the wall along the eastern end, alternating his blasts with the city and outside it to the battle in the fields. Toph didn't want to know how many people perished under his devastating attacks. This is awful, said Teo, 
quivering so violently that Toph felt it. He doesn't care who he's harming with his blasts, does he? I don't think so, so we've got to take him out, said Toph, punching her palm. Well, if we can't get Longshot up there, then we need to bring him down here. How do we do that? Smellerby asked. We don't have enough firepower to break the wall or anything. No, said Teo, but take a look up there. He pointed, presumably more for the benefit of Smellerby and Longshot. There are piles of supplies up there. Javelins, sludge bombs, and stink bombs that they're dropping on the armies fighting outside the walls. They look spaced out pretty evenly across the wall, so they can make sure they're stocked up. Toph beamed. So you're saying we can blow up all that stuff and he'd be forced to come down to us? Either that or we'll get extra lucky and they'll take him down. I don't like the idea of phasing this guy up close, Teo said as another explosion shook the earth. Those explosive beams are something else. The ice coating the streets had long since melted away from the heat of these explosions, and the exposed earth had become molten. Smellerby disarmed one of the water tribe traps laid throughout the city and rigged it for their own usage, while Teo produced an oil that would allow Longshot to light his arrows on fire. When they were ready, Longshot nodded to Toph, and she launched him into the air with a stomp of her feet. Whoa, that's some air, Teo exclaimed. There's no way he'll line up a shot like that. Don't underestimate Longshot, Spillerby said, and Toph felt her heart rate spike. Oh no, the combustion man saw him! Toph wished she knew what happened next. She heard the deafening swarm of buzzard wasps again. Smellerby ducked, hiding her eyes, which was Toph's only warning to do the same. Teo shouted something, and she heard two distant explosions and a third that was much closer, somewhere above them. Close to the wall, something heavy crashed to the ground along with chunks of ice. Someone else landed on top of a nearby building. Longshot! Smellerby shouted in alarm. Toph felt Longshot at the top of the building. He rolled with the momentum of his fall, reaching just to the edge of the stone rooftop where he managed to stop before he tumbled. After a moment of stillness, she felt him stir, as distant as he was. He pushed himself to his feet, ducking low so the combustion man wouldn't spot him. If he rose, that meant there wasn't a direct hit. Toph sighed with relief. He's okay! Tail let out a cheer. Wow, that was amazing! He lit two fire arrows in midair and managed to shoot them at the sludge bombs on both sides of that guy. He had no choice but to jump down or else he would have been covered. In other words, it worked exactly as they had planned. That metal hand of his is nuts, Smellerby said, glancing towards Longshot. He just stuck it into the wall and it slowed his fall. But I don't know if it was enough to make that kind of drop. Toph felt booming footsteps running towards them from the wall, and knew Smellerby's question had just been answered. Yup, she said. It was enough to keep him from hurting himself. He's coming right at us now. They all scrambled. Now that the combustion man's blasts were coming from below, he aimed them almost indiscriminately. One blast hit the underside of a dome, incinerating it and causing heavy blocks of ice to rain down on the buildings beneath it with enough force to make the whole street quake. Longshot was the main target of his ire, but as his heavy, uneven stomps made their way down the street, the combustion man hit the tripwire from one of Smellerby's reworked traps. A net launched from one of the alleyways, tying around him to weigh him down. His metal claw tugged on the bindings as Toph made her way out to face him, and he ripped it just in time to see her approach. She felt another presence behind her, a bulky figure that she recognized as Jin Fu. 
They managed to get by him and his wolf skulls before, but now she cursed under her breath. What rotten timing. The combustion man stepped free of the netting as if it were no more of a nuisance than a spiderfly's web. Toph wasn't even sure if chucking a whole boulder at him would stop him with how huge of a man he was. You sure about this one? Yeah. Since when did you become such a worrywart? Whatever. Blow yourself up then. See if I care. Toph had the mental image of her other self throwing her hands up and scoffing. And it made her grin. The combustion man faced her almost a hundred paces away, hesitating only briefly enough to make Toph wonder if he had compunctions about hitting a kid or if he was just suspicious about something. Whatever the case, she stood openly in the middle of the street. Scared yet, brat? Jinfu called out. Stand down and you don't need to get hurt. I saw you and your friends cowering earlier. We can end this nice and easy. Toph said nothing, waiting only for the barest hint that the combustion man would attack. His sharp inhale made her ear cork up, and she knew that was it. She slid her heel across the ground, shifting the earth just enough to make his metal foot slip out from under him. He fell to one knee just as the blast rang out, making it explode on the ground much closer to him than it was to Toph. She raised an earthen wall to defend herself from most of it, but even with that, she felt the heat wash over her. Jinfu retaliated from behind her, stomping his foot to pull the ground up from under the hard-packed snow, but she moved only enough to avoid his attack and pressed her palms into the stone beneath her feet. On the other side of the wall, the earth opened up to swallow the combustion man's three limbs that touched the ground. The only one that didn't sink was his metal arm, so instead Toph barreled through her own wall to slide closer to him under a cover of a cloud of dust. From his position on the ground, he aimed down at the street at her again but now she was close enough to seize his own metal arm with her bending. Moving before he could retaliate and blow them both up, she wound up and smacked him right in the forehead as hard as she could manage, knocking him out cold. She turned her attention to Jinfu, who apparently now viewed her as enough of a threat to take a stance. Toph! Teo called out, running to her with his metal pole clutched and ready to fight. You did it! We'll help you deal with this guy! Of course I did, she said, grinning. But I'm a little insulted that you think I need help against this chump. Jinfu's stance fell. Toph, he said, his voice far softer than before. His heart rate quickened. Did you just say, Toph? Toph clenched her fists. What's it to you? You're Toph Beifong. It's unmistakable, he said, taking a step towards them. Toph and Teo both took a step back, and she felt Smeller be coming up behind them. Even Longshot perched at the top of a building, his bow ready. I... I thought you were dead. Now that his voice had become less harsh, his posture less aggressive, Toph knew she recognized his voice, too. But not from her other self's memories, as she had originally thought. Her own. I'm from Gaoling, like you are, Jinfu continued. I served your family, your father and mother. I was part of the household guard. I can't believe this. I thought I'd failed you all, but here you are. His voice broke, and he knelt in front of her. Toph froze, and when she didn't attack, the others stood down. Her heart pounded, and she felt for a moment that she had gone back to her parents' estate. Before it fell. Before her mother and father died. You... 
you're not lying, she said, her lip quivering. Jin Fu pressed his forehead against the ground. I'm so sorry. For all these years, I've lamented what became of you all. My inability to save you. My weakness. And in that weakness, I gave myself over to the very nation who destroyed our home. She had been too young then to fight back. All she'd been able to do was flee. It's not your fault. It never was. Smellerby squeezed her shoulder. Bandit! No. Allow me to make up for that failure, Jin Fu said, looking up at her. I pledged to serve you again, just like I did when you were a child. Toph sniffled. <laughs> no, she said, with a voice that shook far more than she thought it would, and she felt his muscles tense. I, I don't need any servants or guards. The Baifong name is gone. Nonetheless, she offered him her hand. But you can help make things right. And you can tell me stories about my parents. About Gaoling and everyone else you knew there. Jinfu took her hand. It would be my honor. Trees with curly, spiraling branches or red bark appeared in the center of Aniakto, some burrowing through buildings and toppling igloos. More and more townspeople rushed into the city streets, some panicking more than others. Zuko made sure to stick by his friends as they made their way through to help the people evacuate. Some regarded them with hostility or skepticism and planted their feet, but just as many accepted their help. This is so awful, Tylee said, as a pair of mushroom spirits spawned and started screaming from the cold. I hope our friends are okay. Zuko turned a corner and slid to a stop when he saw a handful of wolf skulls farther down the street. All of them spotted him, but he saw Chitsang at the lead. Chitsang only nodded to him and turned his men in the other direction, seeking out more townspeople who needed help. The ice domes above the city cracked, apparently reaching their limit. With so many of the waterbenders either fighting outside the city or defeated, Zuko knew it would be difficult to find people who could safely disperse the domes compared to how many it must have taken to put them up in the first place. But they had little time and few options. He poked his head inside of an igloo that was still standing. Three women sat huddled inside, one of which pointed a spear at him. Come on, he said. It's time to go. Can any of you waterbend? After Azula left her fight with Katara behind, she made her way to the northern coast. Even with the comet overhead, Azula felt herself tiring from all of the flying she did with her flame jets. But she couldn't falter now, especially when she reached the ocean. Kuei's fleet had made it past the Kuji Islands and the old Air Nomad territory, so thankfully she didn't have to go far. Hakoda's ships had gone out to meet them, and by the time she arrived, the battle between both diversionary fleets was well underway. Whatever she might have expected to find, what she saw made her stomach clench. The Earth Kingdom fleet outnumbered Hakoda's by far, but a naval battle against waterbenders was foolhardy at the best of times. With Saryu's moon overhead, serpentine monsters made of water thrashed Kuei's ship from a distance, leaving them unable to fight back as they desperately tried to stay afloat. Many ships had already been wrecked, the sailors and soldiers clinging to whatever they could find, even if it was the ice itself that had destroyed their ship. 
The sea roiled as if in a storm, and Azula threw a bolt of lightning at the nearest mast of a water tribe ship. Blazing, it began to topple, and men shouted in alarm as they scrambled out of the way. She struck again and again, forcing them to pause their attacks to escape the flames. Some, especially the waterbenders, leapt overboard to douse their own ships in water. Azula didn't give them the chance. She flew across all of them, with white fire pouring from her fingertips, incandescent against the darkening sky above her. It devoured their sails and washed across the decks. A wall of white fire divided the fleets from each other. From midair, she saw Kue on the deck of his ship with his warhammer raised to her in gratitude before they reversed course to limp away to safety. Alongside her in midair, her other self manifested as the world bordered ever closer to the spirit world. She was ablaze in blue fire that didn't harm her at all, and as soon as Azula turned to face her, the Fire Lord shot lightning directly at Azula's heart. It crackled and burst from her fingertips in an arc that forked through the sky. She didn't flinch. The spectral lightning passed right through her without touching her. They faced each other in the glow of the white fire burning over the ocean. The Fire Lord's sneer from among the blue fire made her look like a vengeful spirit. Azula supposed that comparison wasn't far off. "'You can't hurt me anymore,' she said, her gaze as hard as it was when she faced Katara. "'I'm stronger than you. Stronger than you ever were.'" It hurt to breathe, hurt to move, but Hakoda had never been a man to back down no matter how much he had been wounded. He had enough self-preservation to know when to bide his time and strike again, but admitting defeat altogether was a different matter. He had come so far, he couldn't turn away now. With his wounds, even under the light of Siryu's moon, he knew he had no chance against the Avatar at the height of his power. The boy faced him across the ice as his eyes began glowing with the purest radiance. The Avatar pulled all of the water and ice toward him like he was the moon himself, orbiting rings of water and fire and stone around his body. Tendrils of black clouds reached for him from the Everstorm above, but the wind became too fierce, a tornado that circled with the Avatar at its eye. Hakoda stared for a time, at a loss for what to do, when his instinct for self-preservation kicked in again and he turned to flee. He always had a plan. He had contingencies for if the Avatar drew on the power of his past lives, the teachings of learned men imparted to Hakoda once told him that the Avatar could be permanently defeated in this state, and this vulnerability factored into his plans eventually. To make a world free of spiritual interference, the Avatar had to fall. But now, face to face with the colossal power, he knew he had no chance. How could one person, one child, contain such strength? He hated it. Hated what that power stood for in the face of everything Hakoda had fought for. He had not yet achieved his goals. The world was not yet ready for someone else to take the helm. The storm not yet undone. A second boy, a spirit of some sort, accompanied the Avatar. It was another air nomad, a boy who looked just like him with the same arrow tattoos. Hakoda wondered if it was a long-dead airbender come to witness the Avatar obtain justice. His new bride had been appalled to learn of his plan to subjugate the North with Sirius power. That was her home after all and Melina had every right to be horrified. Though he had known she was Arnuk's tool from the beginning, he hoped she might break free from that. Instead, she pulled a knife on him, told him she was tired of being a pawn. He had offered her freedom from the Nightseer and Arnuk both. If the North was to be purged, through their marriage, she could still help lead the survivors. Yet she had refused. 
He didn't know why he thought of her in what would be his final moments, how swiftly it had all crumbled. The windstorm tore at him and carried him off his feet, and now the water that he struggled to use to anchor himself was stolen from his control, falling under the Avatar's dominion. He had sacrificed so much. Kia, Bato, his mother and two children. Why couldn't they see his plan for the world? They saw him as a tyrant with only greed for more power. Oh, how they misunderstood. But he had long ago decided to take on that mantle, to do whatever he had to in order to lead the world into a new age. He knew this past would one day result in his defeat, even his death, but he was not yet prepared. Sokka and Katara were not yet prepared. The earth trapped his limbs in a vice, and he turned to face his fate. Aang didn't let the grief consume him as it usually did. This time, when he invoked the Avatar state, he had been in complete control. Guru Patik had been right. All he needed to do was make his decision. It was time to go. The world shook. The glow in Aang's eyes died, but the power didn't leave him. Hakoda's arms had been spread out on either side of him, forced down on his knees. Are you going to kill me now, Avatar? You tried to spare me, and I turned on you again. Before that, you showed a moment of weakness, and now you have a broken arm for your efforts. Or maybe you'll just hand me over to my daughter for my reckoning. The winds gently carried Aang down in front of him. I thought for a while that I wanted to kill you, but I don't, Aang said. With his healing, the swelling in his arm had gone down, and the pain began to dull. There's been enough death and destruction in the world. I don't regret my actions earlier, because I already chose to keep on fighting and struggling, even if it will lead to more difficulty, because I believe, in the end, it will be worth it. Will your allies accept that? Will the world accept that you don't think I deserve to die? Hakoda hung his head and grit his teeth. I have no wish to see a world built by your hands. You may not deserve to live, Aang said. Aang's other self hung at his shoulder, a reminder of what was to come. Aang felt his approval. But compassion shown only to those who deserve it isn't compassion at all. He pressed one hand against Hakoda's forehead and the other on his chest. The Emperor stared up at him, his eyes piercing and his words scathing. So after everything, you choose compassion? You choose mercy? It doesn't mean I will ever excuse your actions or forgive them, Aang said, and neither will the world. But maybe one day you could have a chance to be part of the world we'll all build together. Red light shone from Aang's eyes and mouth and blew from Hakoda's a reflection of the sky above. It spread over their skin, their clothes, a power not seen in the world for thousands of years. Power that required a true mind and a true will, unyielding in the face of hardship and suffering, and the willingness and strength to take another step. Always another step. He reached inside of Hakoda at the energy that made up his soul, the same energy that made up spirits. Bending the energy within him was not so different from spirit bending. He found Hakoda's chakras, and within them, the flow that made him a bender. He heard Hakoda's voice deep in the core of his being. What are you doing to me? I'm taking away your bending. Forever? 
Red light overpowered the blue, turning the sky a vivid crimson. Aang could not lie or hide the truth like this. Their souls bared to each other. Maybe. One day, if you prove that you've changed, there might be a chance I can give it back. Bakoda could not hide his thoughts, either. I am still a warrior. You are. And maybe you will one day threaten us again. But you will keep fighting, regardless. I will. Always. When Aang opened his eyes again, they were in the spirit world. Sedna sensed the shift in the material world in the moment when two souls struggled and redirected the flow of the world's energy. The two worlds had begun to overlap. Beasts and ruins of the material world had been displaced to appear in the spirit world, and soon all worlds would join them. Moonlight shone on a frigid mountaintop, and both Sedna and Seryu materialized. Their battle had come to an end. It is time for me to see my end of a deal, she said. She caressed his face, and he closed his eyes, her voice as smooth as it had been before she crossed to the mortal world. How lonely it is that you cannot bathe in your own moonlight. It has always been beautiful, even when I can only see it once every hundred years. Seryu put one hand over hers. Why else would I only return in the depth of winter? Who else could I love but you? Sedna smiled softly and vanished to claim what was hers. In the absence of the stars above, drowned out by the light of the sky and the darkness of the Everstorm, spirits began appearing across the snowfields, casting their own haunting glow. Energies snaked through the snowfields, a vibrant green like the spirit lights that were supposed to dance in the sky. None of the spirits interfered in the battle between brother and sister, and no words were spoken. The temperature rose with the tumultuous energies of the spirit world and falling snowflakes turned to rain, a downpour so intense that Sokka wondered if they unintentionally caused it with the force of their water bending. Katara attacked first, waves rolling across the field. Sokka rose above them, kicking out so that his spiraling tower of water lashed out at her from up high. He let himself plummet, cleaving through her waves with joined palms and a watery blade, but she skated aside to avoid his attack. She thrust a hand forward and he felt his limbs clench, but he shook free of them and retaliated in turn, bloodbending just enough to shift her sense of balance and make her tumble from the top of her wave. Katara rolled to her feet before he could press his attack, snarling with all of the ferocity of their clan's namesake as a storm of ice blades swiped toward him like claws. He rose up high on a water spout again, and she joined him, lashing out at Sokka with arms coiled in water. He matched her movements and both of them swirled around each other, spinning and weaving through each other's attacks. They had never fought each other before, not like this. Sokka lamented everything that led to this, her desperate plea to take back everything she had lost, her inability to, to see what she still had. Among the spirit lights glittering around them, Sokka saw his older self and the other Katara, older and with kind eyes. Both of them looked sad, as if they wanted to put a stop to this fight, but knowing they couldn't. Sokka felt the pain of his other self as keenly as his own. Katara didn't seem to notice them. She froze his water spout solid with a single breath, encasing his legs in it, but Sokka struck downward and shattered it all at once, slicing at her water spout with so many ice blades that it toppled. 
When they both fell, Sakari regained his footing first and pressed both palms toward her, intensifying the force of the rain and pelting her with hundreds of water bullets until she shielded herself. His stomach lurched and he felt her blood bending gripping him again, forcing him backward to crash into the remains of his frozen water spout. As the water coiled around him to carry him back to his feet, the rain stopped overhead, and he realized she had created a dome of water to encompass them both. But he thrust out his hand to break it. Water rushed in and coiled around them, but Sokka froze it before she could attack him with a deluge of water and snow. Icy spears erupted from the structures he created, but from the wall of water behind her, a barrage of dozens of tentacles lashed out and smacked them away, undulating as they waited for more attacks headed toward her. They grasped her, and she floated among them, her legs dangling, and she retaliated when he summoned more ice spikes from the dome above them both. He only meant to distract her. Katara was the more powerful bender of the two of them, but Sokka had his tricks. He swept against the water at the base of her wall of tentacles behind her, shifting them all so that they trembled. At the same time, he tugged at the foundations of her water dome, and for all her power, she struggled to retain her balance. The dome collapsing as he grabbed it all at once, sending a spiraling spear of water to drill through her defenses. A deluge of water poured onto both of them, soaking them to the skin, and the force of his attack sent her soaring across the snow and ice like a stone across a lake. Katara lay still for a moment, face down in the snow and the rain, until she began pushing herself up on shaking arms, her hair covering her face. More water tentacles rose at her back, lifting her up, and Sokka prepared to keep on fighting. He would continue for as long as she needed. The air around them blurred, and Aang appeared between the two of them, with Hakoda's arm slung across his shoulder, supporting him in a standing position. His father, defeated, but alive. No! Katara's howl of anger sounded almost as if it echoed through the snowfields and the storm churning above. Aang let Hakoda go, and he slumped to his knees with a groan while Aang stood over him. I'm sorry, Katara, he said, and to Sokka, it sounded as if he truly meant it. I took his bending away from him, for good, unless my other self decides to one day give it back. Aang glanced up at the young monk overhead. The three spirits, their other selves, surveyed the scene from above, watching but not interfering. Sokka shared a sense of awe with his other self for what Aang had done. You saved his life, Katara said, in rage and anguish. After everything he's done? When you have the power to end it? The temperature dropped so sharply and suddenly that the rain stopped falling at once, turning to snow again, and a gravelly voice spoke as if it came from the snow itself. Have you forgotten our agreement, Avatar? Sedna. Aang closed his eyes as if bracing himself, and then opened them again. No, I haven't, as the winter spirit appeared in front of him. Hakoda doesn't need to die. He already bled for you. Please, Sedna, I ask that you see reason. She glared at him, her icy blue eyes as tempestuous as the storm around them. You think I will simply forget everything he has done? The slight his ancestor made against me? Or do you think I will take pity on my own descendant and suddenly attain a sense of familial affection for him? The dark clouds of the Everstorm touched the ground in spots all around the snowfields, swirling tornadoes that had violet lightning surging within them. The light from both moons continued to shine, and the scarlet of the comet made the sky seem molten, 
blending together with the rosy brilliance of the light spirit dominion above. The sky had never looked so chaotic, so beautiful, so primal in its breaking. The ground quaked, ice cracking as the land shifted and worlds crashed together. The flow of emerald spirit lights across the field intensified, reflecting off of the structures of ice left behind in the wake of Sokka and Katara's battle. Not at all, Aang said, shaking his head. He alone seemed almost calm. I don't ask that you ever forgive him, but give him a chance to one day work to make things right. I've had enough death. Then you choose to give up the airbender girl's life instead, Sedna said, with an air of finality. You saved Sangmu once, a hundred years ago, Aang reminded her, as well as so many other people forsaken by the Water Nation over the years. You are capable of kindness, I know it. Hakoda says that spirits interfere in the lives of mortals too much, but if you do so with kindness in your heart, we can all really help each other. Humans can help spirits, too. Sokka clenched his fists. Sedna seemed as impenetrable as an iceberg refusing to back down, but Sokka had no wish to see Sangmu die. The terms of your deal called for the blood of Aniak, Sokka said. His blood runs through my veins, too. If I give you my life willingly... No! He expected Aang to shout in defiance, but though his mouth was open, it was Katara who had spoken. No, Sokka, she said, bracing herself with her hands on her legs. She quivered in place, struggling to stand straight. You can't die. Not for him. You are all I have left to fight for, brother. Our nation needs you. I need you. Saka stared at her, stunned. She had almost killed him at Ba Sing Se, and that was before he had even really betrayed the Water Tribes, betrayed her. She had only ever wanted to see him on the throne so she could hold the power in the background. So he had thought. He tried to formulate a response, but couldn't. He didn't have to when his father started laughing. What a surprise, said Hakoda, after his laughter died down. He didn't rise up from his knees. Is it possible that you and I came to the same conclusion, daughter? That we would be the ones to fight and lead our nation through the storm of war, with the intention for Sokka to assume the throne in the peace we had achieved with our bloody hands? Though I admit, I'd hoped you would support your brother from the shadows instead of ruling in your own right. Your idea of peace is much different than mine, Katara said, glowering. How touching that you included me in that plan after all. No, father, I fully intended to rule as empress and step aside to offer the throne to Sokka when I was done. Sokka stared down at his feet. I'm glad you both had these grand plans for me he said, his voice low. But I don't want the throne. I don't want to be an emperor. I don't deserve it, and I'm not built for it. I never was. He fixed his eyes on Sedna. But if you don't take my life, I intend to dissolve the empire. I'd bring our nation back to the way things used to be, with each clan leading themselves, all of us working together to guide our nation, like-minded chiefs all keeping us afloat to navigate these waters. People, like Yue, who and Chief Liren. Lofty goal, said Sedna. Maybe, said Sokka, shrugging. Maybe it was as Sedna said. It might have even been overly naive, 
but she had to understand. Their family's transgressions would end with him. But if you'll let me, I intend to see it through. If I ever falter, my life is yours to take. The world quaked again, but Sedna gave him a barely perceptible nod. I told you once that the girl's safety would be your responsibility, and it seems you've kept up your end of that bargain. If you are truly willing to give your life for hers, then I suppose I can accept those terms. I'll be watching. She vanished in a swirl of snowflakes, her voice lingering as part of the snow. Perhaps you will make up for the sins of your ancestors. Perhaps not. But never forget that vow. Sokka turned to Hakoda. As for you, maybe you could sit in prison for the rest of your life. Or maybe you can live like all the taboo breakers you condemned. Learn what it's like to live at the edge of society, scorned by your own people. Learn the ways of others like I did. And where do I fit into this world of yours, brother? Katara asked, unmoving. What will I do if you let him keep on living? With a heavy heart, he turned his gaze back to her. You don't, he said. At least, not yet. Maybe one day. But until then, I want you to go find Mom. You need to see her. Katara bit her lower lip and closed her eyes, as tears brimmed at the corners of them. I knew you'd say that, she said. How can I face her after all this time? If she really does live. There's good in you, Katara, Aang said, casting his eyes to the spirits of his friends above them. I know there is. You just have to find it. You want a world where this war's over, even if you don't know your place in it. You'd just... let me go? Despite everything I could do? She asked, accusation in her tone. After everything I've already done... What is it you really want? Sokka asked her in return. I don't know. Her eyes passed over Hakoda, then followed Aang's gaze to the sky. I want to make my own choices without anyone manipulating me. Sokka gestured to her. Well, you're free to. Perhaps for the first time in her life, free of everyone else's influence. Letting you go might not be the right decision, Aang said. Just like sparing Hakoda's life might be wrong, but I choose to believe in what we've accomplished so far. You might make the wrong decisions, too. I can't force you to make them, or else I'd be just as bad as a tyrant. Maybe one day, when you're ready, we can go see Mom together, Sokka said. More swirling clouds from the Everstorm reached for the ground like spindly fingers and fractures spread through the blackness above like glowing wounds, and Aang exchanged a glance with Sokka. It was time to go. With one last glance at Katara, Aang and Sokka departed into the spirit world with Hakoda in tow, leaving her behind as she fell to her knees. High above, the second moon began to shrink away, completing its journey across the heavens. Just as Sirius moon came early, it departed before the end of its three days. With it went the comet, its blazing tail vanishing over the horizon. 
When Hakoda's fleet saw the moon give way to a starry night and northern lights, they abandoned their raid of Egnakela and sailed away. Kana stood on the remains of the wall and watched them go, and turned to regard the city they managed to protect. If the moon was leaving now, she could only assume Aang had prevailed. Some dark spirits lingered, but Zhang Zhang, Lo, and Li fought to subdue them while Kana's old friend Misu helped to spirit bend them. After that, they all focused their efforts on finding the wounded, while Kana and Spriggy began the task of healing them. The crystalline trees that had sprouted throughout the city from the spirit world had damaged some of it, breaking the perfect grids and carefully organized canals. But Kana wondered if after everything was over they might stay. While Kana knelt to aid a man she couldn't discern as a northerner or southerner, a figure flew toward her from the air, and Iroh let out a jovial greeting. Sangmu, he said, holding his arms wide. I am glad to see that you are all right. She smiled at them both as the lemurs chirped from among her robes. How can I help? Kana focused on healing the man in front of her, but smiled back. Sometimes, kind, comforting words are enough. See to who you can and let us find those who need healing the most. A spectral version of herself manifested at her side and Kana recognized her from when she saw her other self in the spirit world. If she could appear now, then... The spirit world, Iroh said. Kana's other self folded her hands together and spoke to them all. I think it is time to go home. Kana turned to Iroh. Her brow creased in worry. Iroh's circumstances were unique, and she didn't know what would happen to him now. As if sensing her thoughts, he placed a hand on her shoulder. There is nowhere for me to return to, Iroh said, giving them an encouraging smile. I would like to think that this is my home now. Sangmu looked up at the sky with an expression that was both sad and contemplative, and then joined her hands as if in prayer. Goodbye, Yang. I know you can't hear this, but I hope you find peace. In your other world. Kana closed her eyes, offering her own silent goodbye and wishing the same. Aang found her in the unrelenting chaos of the spirit world and held out his hand. The fleet below her had been saved, but Azula knew she couldn't pick up the pieces for them. The worst had passed, and both fleets sailed to the closest land they could find. When Azula took his hand, she had the disorienting sensation of the world spinning and blurring around them before it cleared with a sudden stop. When she blinked again, she saw that they had been transported back to Aniokto, atop the rocky precipice that overlooked the city between the palace and the institute. Azula gasped when she took in the scene. Spirits that resembled massive whales flew above the city, among the dancing spirit lights and the Everstorm streams of energy trailing behind their fins like the tails of kites. They sang a mournful song as if they heralded the end of things. Neither light nor dark spirits bothered them. They had an age and majesty to them that marked them as one of the ancients. Azula watched the sky as light and darkness surged back and forth above the whales, but for all the chaos around them, those spirits seemed almost at peace, like this was something they were meant to do. In comparison to all of the chaos earlier, this felt like the eye of the storm. 
Sokka stood on the rocky precipice with them, watching with just as much awe as Azula. Aang had also fetched Appa, grumbling but unharmed. Even Hakoda had been brought along, unconscious from the exhaustion of the battle and his wounds. Below them, the ice domes cracked and Aang's eyes glowed as he walked to the edge of the precipice. He held out both hands and the cracks in the ice deepened, the domes quaking and splitting apart. The wind circled at Aang's feet and lifted him in the air, and when he raised his arms, the ice domes rose with them, hovering above the entire city. With the power of the spirit world at his fingertips, he began melting the ice into water. Lifting all of it over his head, he unleashed a funnel of fire and wind from his hands, expanding to cover all of the ice and water with enough heat and force to evaporate it. The remnants of the ice domes coalesced into snowflakes, gently falling over the city. Azula watched it fall, holding out her hands to catch it. They had saved the city, and even the world. She felt a sense of triumph, a weightlessness. It took her a moment to realize the Fire Lord had gone. She would have almost expected her other self to put up one last fight before she left back to her world, but the scratching and burning at the back of Azula's mind had vanished. She felt as light as she ever had, unburdened. But if the Fire Lord was already gone, that meant... Before she even turned to look back at Aang, he collapsed to the ground. Aang! His name left her lips in desperation, as she fell to her knees at his side, cradling him in her arms. How could this be? How could he let it happen so fast? Aang, she said again, shaking him, wishing for him to open his eyes one last time so she could properly say goodbye. You idiot, she said, and her voice broke as the tears fell. I know we didn't have time left, but you were supposed to go with everyone here so we could all see you off. Sokka knelt at her side. Azula. She hugged Aang close, careful of his injured arm, and she sobbed. She didn't care that Hakoda was behind them. She didn't care who saw her. I wasn't ready. I wanted to tell you so many more things, Aang. I'm sorry. Her breath hitched in her throat. That was his voice. When she looked up, she saw him standing at the edge of the precipice again. He was as intangible as a spirit. A bit older, somehow, with a full head of hair again. Then she realized that this was what he looked like in his world. He stood with his hands at his sides and his gaze averted from her, as if guilty. A white baboon spirit with a wooden staff stood next to him, as if waiting for something. Azula choked back her tears. You're... you're still here. Aang shook his head. Not for long. I thought I'd at least get to say goodbye to everyone. It doesn't work like that. You've made your choice, the baboon spirit said, though not unkindly. It's time to go now. Ayo is waiting for us. The lion turtle was guided back to his own world. Behind him, floating beyond the precipice, Azula and Sokka saw images of his other friends. She looked at them all as if seeing them for the first time. All of them were smiling, drifting upwards and fading away. Asaka, with both eyes and more scars, stood with Toph whose hair was ragged and cut short. They beckoned to Aang, while an oppa with patchy fur and even Momo flew up towards the storm. Katara looked at Azula with eyes strangely kind and mouthed something that might have been a thank you. Zuko, a deep burn over the left side of his face, held his hand out to Aang, waiting for him to grasp it. 
The other me should wake up soon, Aang said to them both. Be there for him. I think you're going to have to train him all over again. Sokka smiled. We will. Azula turned away from him and faced the Institute, finding herself suddenly unable to form words despite everything they still had to say to each other. The tears fell again, and this time she didn't let either of them see her cry. The only words that she could bring herself to say were the ones that said it all, and not enough at the same time. I love you, Aang. She felt him. He had no physical form, but she felt his arms circle around her shoulders in an embrace from behind. She closed her eyes and stood still as he held her, imagining him there as if he still had all of his warmth. Her tears fell down her cheek and dripped from her chin, and despite how much she wanted to fall to her knees and sob, she wanted to remain strong for him. She wanted him to go and save his world with no regrets. I love you too, Azula, he said, stepping away from her. When she turned, he began to fade away like all of his friends, becoming part of the sky. She heard something stirring below them and realized Toph had arrived, raising all of the rest of their friends as high as she could on a platform of earth. Zuko and all the rest jumped up and down and waved and shouted their goodbyes to Aang. They were still so far below, but their voices carried. It was enough. Aang looked down at them with tears falling from his eyes. He smiled for them, and then looked back one last time at Azula and Sokka before he joined the spirits of his friends, disappearing from their world forever. When Aang opened his eyes, he found himself in a starry void. He recognized this place. He'd been here twice before. He still had only his spirit body. As he looked around, more lights started appearing, coalescing together into shapes. At his feet, a path made of starlight snaked through the void, ending at the astral representation of his highest self, holding all of the energy of creation between his hands. Far below him, a pair of worlds appeared, and he knew it meant he truly was on his way home. Enma, the monkey spirit, did not accompany Aang this far. It seemed he had only appeared to make sure Aang had made his choice in time. Avatar Wan appeared along the path, spreading his hands wide with a welcoming smile. Well done, Aang, he said. Well done. Come on, walk with me. Aang's smile back was a little bitter but he fell into step alongside Juan. Where's everyone else? He asked. When I left that world, I saw my friends, and I thought our other lives would be here too. They're all busy, he replied, going back to their proper places, their proper orders. I'm here because, in all worlds, I am the first. How is that possible? I've learned that there are so many worlds out there. Aang looked down at the vibrant spears below, so full of life. He didn't know why he could only see two. Probably an infinite amount, and all of them are so different. Well, there are many similarities between them, too, Juan said. But I don't know. Maybe I'm the one constant. They walked in silence for a little while. The path seemed to stretch on to forever. Aang didn't mind. It was calm here. It was Juan who broke the silence. Do you know why we sent you to another world yet? Aang almost stopped walking. That was something he'd spent endless hours wondering, but all the answers he'd found had been incomplete or unsatisfying. 
for a while, I thought it was just because you wanted me to see the world from a different perspective, like Yang Chen first told me. But then I thought you wanted me to see that anyone is capable of great good or great evil. Wan tilted his head. That's part of it. You could have learned those lessons in your world. Time is an illusion, and so is death. But the greatest illusion in this world is the illusion of separation. Two separate lessons, two separate teachings from ancient gurus of different times, joined together in one. The nations and even worlds may appear separate, but it is our choices that make us who we are, not those arbitrary lines decided by others. So you wanted me to understand my enemies, rather than just defeat them, Aang surmised. He averted his eyes off the path, watching the shooting stars go by below. That sounds like who I used to be. I had always wanted to find the peaceful solution. I guess I lost sight of that for a little while. He found his hand reaching up to touch the hilt of Ozai's sword that he normally kept on his back, expecting to feel its familiar weight. But of course, his astral body wouldn't have it. He didn't miss it. He knew he would never wield one again, even back in his world. He felt so much lighter without it. You did, Wan said, and I can't fault you for that. I don't think you were wrong to try to kill Ozai. I probably would have done the same in your shoes. But you knew that all life is precious, and those values made you who you are. But now you're touching on the biggest reason we sent you to another world. Aang looked back at him. What's that? So you can forgive yourself, he said. He stopped walking and turned to face Aang. So, now I ask, have you? Have I forgiven myself? Aang stopped a pace ahead of him, staring ahead at the representation of himself holding all the cosmic energy of the universe. He had never thought of it in terms of forgiving himself. He had so many failures. So many things he had done wrong. For a long time, he thought he would never be able to atone and make things right, especially when he had become responsible for two worlds, and eventually, all of them. But he had saved one. He had taken the first step. That counted for something. Yes, he said finally. I think I have. Juan closed his eyes and smiled again. To acknowledge our past mistakes, be gentle to who we used to be, and understand why we have done the things we have. Forgiveness of the self is perhaps the hardest to find. I'll never stop hurting, though, Aang said, turning back to Juan as they resumed their walk, remembering all those I've lost, not just those who had died, but the ones he had left behind, Azula, most of all. And that's okay, said Juan. Grief has a way of staying with us. But when it builds up in you and feels like it's about to burst, let it burst. Let it burst and fill up again with your love for them. They walked in companionable silence again, the burden lighter than it had felt in a long time. Aang wondered how long it would take for him to go back. His astral self didn't look much closer. Aang decided to break the silence this time. When I saw Batu in the Tree of Time... You consider taking him into yourself? Juan finished for him. And now you're wondering what would have happened if you did. Aang nodded. Of course Juan would have known his thoughts at that time. Yes, all that light and all that darkness, completely in balance in one person. 
What would I have become? Juan tapped his cheek. That, I don't know, he admitted. Maybe you would have become an all-powerful being. Something more than human, spirit or avatar. Perhaps even a being completely at odds with itself. Or maybe we would have just ceased and become part of the universe. It went without saying that Aang didn't want that outcome. We're at balance already, anyway, Aang said. We're humans. We already have some of his darkness in us. And there's nothing wrong with that. Exactly. Juan stopped again and looked up, and now Aang realized they had reached the end. One last thing, Aang. Aang stepped into the sphere of cosmic energy. Once, he would have been hesitant to continue, knowing the fight that awaited him on the other side. But now he had the courage to take another step. He sat down, with his knuckles pressed against each other, his arrows glowing. What is it? he asked. Good luck, Juan said, waving to him. And remember, you're not alone. The black clouds of the Everstorm dispersed, their violet glow fading into the night. When the storm cleared, spirit lights and stars lit up the sky again, and Azula wondered if Aang would be watching those same stars, wherever he was. The winds slowed, and spirits started to vanish, one by one, their song ending as the world knit itself back together. With the departure of the moon and comet, the fighting had stopped, and the people began to survey the damage done to their homes, their livelihoods. With the threat facing their world gone, life continued. They still had a long way to go until they could find peace. Their friends climbed up to the top of the precipice. Once they reached Azula and Sokka, hugging and smiling and crying, Azula saw that Aang stirred. She went to him, cradling him across her lap, and for one wonderful moment she pictured the possibility of her Aang waking up in her arms, returning to them, but she knew that no matter how much she yearned, it would never come to pass. The boy's eyes opened, blinking as if waking from a long sleep, and he had a faraway look on his face as he blearily smiled at her. Will you go penguin sledding with me? Author's note, next, on to the epilogue, at last. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode. Please rate, review, like, subscribe, or favorite to show your support. You can find us on Tumblr at avatardistortedreality-podcast. You can find us on Twitter at atladistortpod. And on Reddit at distortedrealitypod. If you already follow us on social media, please reblog, retweet, or upvote our posts to show your support. Feel free to message us on social media or send an email to avatardistortedrealitypodcast at gmail.com. If you want to give us a tip for the work that we do, there is a support button on our Anchor site, anchor.fm slash atla-distorted-reality. Of course, we appreciate but do not expect tips. To contact Distorted Reality's author, Dathan, you can find him on Tumblr at Cogflox. That's C 
O-G-F-L-O-X on Tumblr. If you have a friend who you think would enjoy Distorted Reality, whether it's the work itself or our content, please share it with them. All art used was created by Tumblr user Avatar Distorted Reality. Not Avatar Distorted Reality dash podcast, that's us. They are also responsible for translating scenes into comic book form, which is one of the more famous ways that people have been introduced to the fic. Again, thank you so much for listening, and we will see you next time.